Your sensors are correct. Do not adjust your heading. Your heading. You've discovered the Omega Particle. Streaming to the Alpha Quadrant and beyond. 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 Here's your host. The anchorman of the Federation. The doctor of Dilithium. This is Jonathan Wiegand. We are back. Welcome to the Omega Particle Podcast. I am your quarantined and gracious host, Jonathan Wiegand. Yes, after a two-week sabbatical, I guess you could call it a sabbatical, I am back better than ever. Yes, uh, I'm recording this a little a little bit later than I uh, than I normally do. Normally, I try to get it out weekly, but there's been a lot of changes in my uh, in my personal life that have kind of stopped me from being able to record a lot. And if you're a regular listener to the podcast, you understand that my wife is super pregnant. Should I say was super pregnant? And it finally happened. I was trying to prep. I have a lot of episodes in the tube, just never got the chance to record them and edit them and get them out. However, we are back, and yes, I am now a proud papa. I'm a proud father of my um, sweet little boy. He was born on June 3rd. Anyway, um, so I am personally celebrating some alone time. Um, for all you new parents out there, it's you, you're exhausted all the time. So, But I, I find tranquility in doing this podcast, and I am so happy to be back behind the mic and smoking a beautiful beautiful uh St. Patrick's Day is that right Luna? Yeah, St. Patrick's Day dirty hooligan cigar. So if you hear that, my nicotine stained fingers, that's what it is. So yes, we are glad to be back this episode. Man, and what the heck happened? I mean, I was gone 2 weeks. Kind of and the beauty thing about having a child is you kind of can escape and unplug and not really pay attention to the outside world, but whoa. The world just has gone to crap. And I, I had some personal things to, to struggle with here, and, and I'm definitely going to make a, a statement for Black Lives Matter. I, I think it's not a political issue. I think it's a human rights issue. And if some people and some a group of people feel they are um, attacked, marginalized, and continually systematically degraded, then it's who are we to say, no, you're not. And we have to listen to how people feel. And I think in the beauty of Star Trek is a real model for us. And hopefully we can get to a day where race and gender don't matter. And it's just about the person's character. So that's my statement on that. I know that I have listeners all over the world. So if you don't, I'm sure you know what I'm talking about because there's demonstrations everywhere. And again, I don't normally get political, but like I said, I don't believe Black Lives Matter and George. what happened to George Floyd is a political issue. I think it's a human rights issue. If you don't like that, just don't listen to the podcast anymore. Now, I don't do this for money. I do it for fun. So, yeah. <laughs> anyway, so having fun here. And and one of this episode, it was really fun to research. And a lot of this stuff I had no clue about. Um, the reason before I talk about the topic, and I'm sure you've already known from the title, is that the last like big episode was about the economics. That was such a heavy episode. You know what I mean? It was just heavy. It was about risk and about scarcity and about capitalism and European socialist Marxism and all that. It was not just a easy-go-lucky kind of episode. So now we're going to have some McDonald's, as my favorite comedian says, 
and we're going to enjoy the stuff that's not really good for us, but man, it fills us up. And that is going to be talking about the drama on the TNG set and the drama on creating. See, I always thought, I always heard rumors that Patrick Stewart was kind of a dick and he was really angry and really mean. But the more it comes with research, I found, no, actually Gene Roddenberry, my friend. Gene Roddenberry, the one with the stick up his butt. So Gene Roddenberry is kind of, I wouldn't say he's the antagonist, but he he's, he's the motion of the ocean when it comes to the drama and getting TNG on the air. And there's a little cast drama we're going to get into, but this will be a two-part episode just from the, from the start. Um, the first episode, we're going to talk about the creation issues, how it got on the air. We have finally it getting to syndication and then and casting Patrick Stewart, which is crazy. And then a lot of random facts, like Roddenberry was friends with uh, R.L. Hubbard. He is the founder of the Church of the Space Bloop Bloop. We're going to pull South Park and we're going to call it that because I don't want to get sued by this particular um, science fiction religion. But yeah, fun stuff like that, that I found. Anyway, let's get into um, the first episode about TNG and the drama. Before we go into the episode, I just looked at my notes. Thank you, Luna. Luna's my assistant. She helps me out. I want to talk about the Connecticon that happened yesterday. Now, they were so graciously um, nice to me to invite me to this, this virtual Comic-Con, but I had to decline because, of course, I'm kind of being the, the home, taking care of my wife and, and taking care of taking care of my son. So it's just really busy. And my wife had a, had a tough delivery. She's fine, but I still had to kind of be at home and take care of her. So Comic-Con probably would have lasted like three or four hours. And I just didn't have the just didn't have the time devoted solely to that and to prep the way I wanted to prep. But hopefully you guys turned out and listened to it. From what I've heard, it was cool. It was great. And Science Division is what put it on. Science Division, if that name rings a bell, they are the ones that made that 21st century triple with all the alarms and cool stuff on it. So let's get into the drama behind the next generation. So before we get into all this Roddenberry huckabaloo, uh, we're going to start up about a little bit of history and Roddenberry's mindset when he came to the table with Paramount about the next generation, because getting that background definitely helps in seeing what shapes his choices. Because if you just said his choices, you'd be like, mm, okay. But to give a background gives a little bit of a more well-rounded picture. And that's what we want to do here at OPP, provide the best well-rounded fleshed out sources that we can because I am the anchor man of the Federation. I'm here to do a good job. As you can tell, I'm very excited to be back. <laughs> I felt bad for my wife. I was like, well, well this episode and that episode. And she's like, yeah. anyway, I can ramble. But anyway, I digress. So I don't know if a lot of you knew this. I know um, about the original series is that Star Trek only was on the air for three years and was eventually canceled. And this is a big part of Roddenberry's vision of Star Trek was that it was this utopia is that this is the dream. This is what humanity will get to. This is what we will be. And it was almost like this manifesto of Roddenberry, personal manifesto of Roddenberry saying, this is what I want and think the future should and will be. 
However, the original series wasn't super popular. Paramount said, hey, we'll give it a shot. We're going to give it a movie. And Star Trek, the motion picture, just to be blunt, was a fiscal disaster. It did not make money. And personally, through my research, I don't know how Wrath of Khan got greenlit, to be honest. And thank gosh it did. Because if it didn't get greenlit, then Star Trek would have been dead on arrival. Star Trek Wrath of Khan, brilliant picture. My, what I think is the best Star Trek movie, really rejuvenated the franchise and gave more credibility for future movies. And that's really what got Star Trek rolling, was just the movies. Now, during that time in the 70s and 80s, when Roddenberry's pumping out all these uh, movies, he actually tried many times to get other sci-fi shows greenlit by major networks saying, hey, I did Star Trek, and I can make it popular for you too, and blah, blah, blah. And all the studios rejected him. So he he kind of is this chip on his shoulder, like, hey, I'm more than just one good idea. I have more about me than just one good idea. And so he has this little sassy side as he's um, going into the summer of 1986. Now, the summer of 1986, Star Trek Four was about to come out, It was the 20th anniversary of the original series. From listening to interviews and recordings, it felt like in the Star Trek world, something was building. Like, you have the movie, you have the anniversary. What's happening? What's building? What's coming? And that was Paramount decided to, hey, we're going to start a new series. Bingo, bingo. So Paramount's like, we're going to start a new series. It's going to be great. Let's go, kid. Let's run with this thing. However... Mel Harris, who's the president of Paramount, did not originally bring on Gene Roddenberry to be on the show. And that makes sense because you don't want it to be an exact sequel because sometimes sequels don't exactly work out. Now, exception of Wrath of Khan, Empire Strikes Back, you normally get things like Attack of the Clones, for to quote another great science fiction genre. And so... Because Gene was kind of reluctant at first, but then he got excited to do another Star Trek show that him like, hey, I've been kind of rejected by all these other people. This is Star Trek's my wheelhouse. It's that personal manifesto of my future dreams and ambitions. So let's do it. Since Paramount did not originally bring him in, he he saw the studio as an adversary. And that's going to play super important strings in the future. And we will see that in this episode and the next. He eventually was brought on board to the show because bringing Gene on, Paramount, just a little backstory, Paramount owned the rights to everything Star Trek. So they could have made a Next Generation show. They could have made more movies without the blessing of Gene Roddenberry. However, at this point, Gene Roddenberry was Star Trek. He was just as popular as the show itself. So you can't have Star Trek without Gene Roddenberry in the summer of 1986. And the studio knew that. And so Gene Roddenberry negotiated a contract and Paramount paid out the nose for him. Because the only thing Gene had to say is, I don't like this show. This isn't Star Trek. This isn't me. And the ratings would have just fell out of the sky. It would have been terrible. I mean, that's that's just good business to me to be like, they know they need you. Go for it. You know, they know they need you. They're desperate for you. They have to have you lean them over a barrel and show them the 50 states. That's and that's what Roddenberry did. 
It's undisclosed how much money made, but I'm sure it's a bundle. And the funny thing is, after all these negotiations, it said that Gene wasn't even really excited to do the show. He was more or less looking forward to retirement. So now that Gene is on the show, there's one big issue, one big elephant in the room, as we could say. And the big elephant in the room was that Gene was an alcoholic and he was on opioids. He was very sick because he was spent decades drinking and drug use. So the studio's like, dude, you got to clean your act up before we start a show. Once he decided to do that, and he got, went to rehab and he got out and he got himself clean, he had to assemble a group of people. And the people he chose, very smart, he chose a lot of the original series writers and producers. Because one thing that I've been reading and about Gene is that loyalty was the utmost important to Gene. And that loyalty was rewarded. So he brought a lot of these people on. And they were great, and that makes super smart idea to do that. But however, there was one big other elephant in the room besides Gene's bad habits that he finally got over. When I say this, you're going to be like, aha, aha, is that all Star Trek fans were pissed. They were angry about bringing in a new captain, a new, sh well, the same ship, a new crew everything and set in a different time they wanted kirk bones and spock that was star trek everything else was not sounds a little familiar doesn't it hmm 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 i guess discovery isn't that bad everybody i guess this is how star trek fans are like 20 years and be like there's no discovery there's something else there's no Star Trek. discovery's the best so anyway Fans were mad. Like I said, it's hard to redo a sequel to get people involved that want to do that type of thing, to buy into a whole new story, a whole new everything. The issue with not having the fans on board, and I'm kind of jumping back and forth here between Gene and the fans, but going back to the fans is that in the 1970s and 80s, and I mentioned this a little bit, Gene got huge. He was doing Comic-Cons, he was doing speeches at universities, in philosophy classes. He was becoming super mainstream in nerd culture. And I mean, people actually thought of him as a visionary and a leader. Again, that personal manifesto about the future. And TNG was going to be that vehicle for him that displayed how the future was going to come about. That it wasn't going to be this three season show could be a seven season. So he's going to have a lot more time, a lot more opportunity to write out how exactly this future unfolds. We don't really get a lot of that in the original series. It's kind of just like, this is the way things are. There's no money. Don't think about it. <laughs> and in TNG, it's like, no, 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 we're definitely going to flesh it out more. And that's exactly what happened. In the opening segment, I talked about RL um, Hubbard. And him and Gene were actually super close. And there was also this like joke that if Gene wanted to start his own religion is that he could have. He was that popular and that many people followed him. Which is wild, if you ask me. Um, anyway, I don't want to go too much in the church of space boop boop or beep beep, whatever I called it. But Gene was big into a ideology called humanism. 
Now, humanism is defined as a system of thought that rejects religious beliefs and centers on human and their capacities and their worth. Now, you may be asking yourself, Jonathan, why are you talking about Gene Roddenberry's specific ideology and thoughts on religion and the human nature? And I'll say because he brought that directly into Star Trek. But I just want to show you what his thought process because it will come into pro, it will come into big league when he's debating the writers, the producers, and the network on how he wants TNG to be. So we're kind of setting it up for the next episode and even at the end of this episode on what he wants his vision to be and if it matches that vision. So moving on, that Gene thought that human beings could ever evolve to almost near perfection. And he was going to put those humanistic views on TNG. Now, you may say, Jonathan, that's a crackpot theory. I don't agree with that. I'm a Christian. I I don't think humanism's in there. Look, I'm just telling you the facts. That's what Gene was. That's what Gene did. And if you go back and watch the episodes, it's in there. We've established Gene's mindset going into the production of TNG. So now that we're in the production, we're going to talk about the most dreaded whale in the room, because I'm tired of using the word elephant, is the syndication of TNG. Now you may say, Jonathan, what is syndication? Syndication is pretty much, how is the show getting on the air? How is the show broadcasted? Is it broadcasted through a network? Is it broadcasted through little networks? How is it given to the public? Now back in the day, before we had streaming services like we do now, Syndication was a very big deal. It was a life and death of TV shows. If you were on a network, you had it made. If you were on a lesser network or on something called first-run syndication, not very good. Not a lot of popular shows existed off of network TV back when that was all there really was. Normal TV network shows ran about 26 episodes for a season, and that was considered normal. However... When they were negotiating, Paramount was negotiating with networks. Networks were only given 13. And they went to all the major networks. They went to um, NBC. NBC said no. They went to ABC. ABC said no. So they finally end up at CBS. And CBS is like, yes, but we're only giving you 13. They originally wanted to do it as a miniseries. And they're like, no, 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 no. And who can blame them? Sequels aren't really that popular sometimes. They're trying to think of, okay, how are we going to protect our investment and protect our risk so we don't get lose tens of millions of dollars here. So the president of distribution in CBS suggested this idea that they would do the 26 episodes, but they would do it on something called first run syndication. Now I didn't know what first run syndication meant. So I'm going to explain (laughs) in case there's not a lot of TV buffs out there is that first run syndication is programming that is sold market by market by market state by state, station by station. Like I said, not a lot of popular shows are on first-run syndication because there's such a push that each station has to individually be like, we want that. So it's not as guaranteed as a network TV slot. And that is super scary for the people at Paramount because they're like, we might lose all our money. So we're going to, they slash the budget. So this ridiculously low budget. And... It was kind of this new hybrid 
of shows now is that it's going to be this major show, but it's going to be on first run syndication. And this was first show of its time and popularity to try first run syndication. And it always said about Star Trek that it's low budget production, super high expectations. We don't really have that now because the budgets are super great on Discovery and Picard. So productions are amazing. Expectations are still high. So it's a little bit easier now that I, f- I feel like to produce than it was back at the very beginning in the summer of 86. So speaking of the production, is that we're going to get into the very first episode, Made, and it was called Encounter at Farpoint Station. This will reveal a lot. This is legit. This is cool. I had fun. This is when, to me, I guess started getting like really interesting. So Gene originally wanted to do a one-hour pilot. Idiot. <laughs> Just kidding. Um... However, the studio's like, listen, bro, you got to do two. And that makes, I mean, to me, that makes sense. Two hours for, I mean, you're introducing an entire new captain. You're introducing an entire new crew. You're introducing an entire new, like, time frame. You're in the, you know, 100 years past Kirk and all this. Like, you need two hours. Like, because you don't want to be like, hi, I'm Picard. I like Earl Grey. Let's go on to Firepoint. Like, no, like, you need at least two hours to flesh it out, to establish a universe, pretty much. Because... You're, they're basically building from the ground up. So Gene was like, you know what? Screw you guys. I'm not writing a two-hour episode. You can find someone else to write it. And that's exactly what they did. They got DC Fontana to help write the show. However, they only had like a week or two to write a two-hour pilot. And Fontana's like, look, I, I don't have the... I don't have the... I can't do that. That's just too much. It's I, I can't do it. And she convinced Gene to help her write the pilot. Now you'd be like, well, Jonathan, why does that matter? It's because Gene and DC had an affair back during the original series days. So they knew each other, knew each other quite well. Yeah, it was uh, interesting. I don't know if that's the reason why Gene decided to do it, but he eventually got on board. And according to an interview with DC, is that she said Gene could write under pressure better than anyone. So he easily wrote out a two-hour pilot under all that pressure and scrutiny. And what he did was that he brought in Q. And Fontana originally didn't do that. So Gene's like, I want to introduce this godlike character, Q, little G. And that Fontana didn't like that. She's like, Q's just kind of like thrown up into the episode. And it wasn't supposed to be about Q. It was supposed to be about the mystery at Farpoint Station. And what happened at Farpoint. And now it's all about Q. So if you if you watch the episode, some of the writing is that way. They kind of set it up for this mystery at the station and diving into that. And all of a sudden it's Q. And it's all Q. And they kind of set the tone for the whole series, which I always thought was weird because they're like, I, Q's like, I will judge your actions and judge humanity based on you. And then he just kind of, I mean, it comes throughout the series, but then near the end of the run on season seven, I'm, the whole time I'm thinking, is Q going to come and just judge everybody again? So I won't spoil anything just in case you haven't watched TNG. So now that we have the pilot, now that we have the pilot, now that we have the production going, now that the studio and syndications roll in, now we have something else. This is a big thing. The casting of the captain. Now to me, the captain is the most important figure on all of Star Trek. Now, Discovery digresses that idea by focusing on Burnham. It determines the, sh- the feel of the show, the direction of the show, the atmosphere of the show. So it's very important on casting 
who they want to be. Now, fun facts are abound in this segment of the podcast. So Bob Justman, who's in charge of casting, was actually walking down the hallway at UCLA, and he heard this booming, manly voice coming from one of the auditoriums. And that was none other than Patrick Stewart. Before he became Sir Patrick, it was Patrick Stewart. He was teaching a class at UCLA on acting, believe it or not. Because I don't know if you know this, but Patrick Stewart is a classically trained actor. He has done Shakespeare out the wazoo. Bob Justman's like, gotta have that guy. That guy is legit. He just carries the air of the captain. He's the captains of captains in me. Maybe one day we'll go into which rank the captains, but I feel like if I was a Star Trek captain, I would want to mirror Picard because he's he's the tops to me. However, this is when we get a little at McDonald's. Gene hated Patrick Stewart. Said, I am not going to have this guy be my captain. I'm not having a bald captain, period. And I'm thinking, bro, what's wrong with bald people? What do you got against bald people? I don't know. So he was very against the idea of having Patrick Stewart as Picard from the beginning. Now, eventually we know he changes his tune, but from the beginning he didn't like Stewart. It's even quoted, I'm not having a bald Englishman play Captain Kirk. I'm thinking, bro, let the past go. It's not Kirk, it's Picard. So the final auditions were down to three people. The president of Paramount was there, of course, and a lot of CBS officials were there, of course. Because like I said, this guy is important. The captain's in an important position. And they all did their readings. And the funny thing is, is that Gene was like, hey, for Picard, can we have Stuart wear a wig? They were like, sure. And so prior to his audition, Stuart had his wig, because he had a wig in England, FedExed all the way to Los Angeles so he could wear it. (laughs) Which to me is just like, ridiculous because i mean this is like in the 86 so it's not like it is today where it's like oh yeah we'll be here tomorrow no problem this is you got to move i think a little bit of heaven and earth back in 1986 to get something international that quickly and so he read with the wig on and they were like do you know what gene's like bring him back in but no wig and it was an okay audition with the wig but the rumor is that when patrick stewart came in Without the wig, he knocked it out of the park, hit a home run. So much so is that Gene Roddenberry's like, do you know what? That's our captain. That's the guy. And everybody's like, wait, I thought you hated this guy. What about hair? He doesn't have any hair. And Gene goes, hair doesn't matter in the 24th century. And that is the ultimate one-upman. Because how do you respond to that? (laughs) Like, I don't even know how to be like, well, uh, okay. Yeah, because it's just, this is his play world, I feel like, when Gene Roddenberry. So Patrick Stewart got the role. And the cool thing, and this is a neat thing about Gene Roddenberry, is that he was meeting with Stewart and he actually told Stewart, hey, you're going to have a lot of license. You're going to have a lot of free range on this particular character. But he did give him some books, some books called the Captain Hornblower series. It's about this old like English captain. And he said, hey, the spirit of Picard is in these books. So study it, but then from there, lay that foundation, do your own thing. And that's what makes Stuart's job of Picard so great, so emotionally involved, is that it's just this blossoming character each season 
that is completely individual and completely his own. So now that we have Stuart, man, this gets nuts coming up. <laughs> so this is something that's probably one of the most large issues with TNG was that Roddenberry brought his personal lawyer, Leonard, now forgive me, I'm not Jewish if I butcher this last name, Leonard Mezik, Mezik, and he brought his lawyer in kind of to be his own personal advocate on the show. But boy, do things go awry. So Leonard comes on, I'm just going to call him Leonard because I don't want to keep butchering that last name. He actually moves on to the lot and in the winter of 1986 and they're starting production. The funny thing is the writers, there's a great couple interviews with the writers and there's like, we would get all these like script notes from Gene, but they weren't in Gene's handwriting. They were in Leonard's handwriting. So he had this, like, he wanted to be part of the show. He wanted to write and be involved in Star Trek, which of course I don't blame him. I would love to be involved in Star Trek too, but he doesn't really have the credentials and or the talent to do that. And in Hollywood, you just can't do that. There's like unions and, and guilds and we'll get into that. But so he's giving them all these notes and passing it off as genes. And he was doing it so much that the writers got an attorney and that the writers guild actually filed a grievance against Leonard and said, you're banned from the lot. You're done. You're done. Get out. And so they banned him from the lot, but he kept sneaking back in. Bro is freaking consistent to the point like the writers would go to lunch and stuff. And he, Leonard would actually go into their offices. He would know their schedules. He would go into their offices and he would add dialogue and additions to the script. And they'd come back to the computer and be like, I didn't write that. This is terrible. Who did this? And eventually got around that Leonard sneaking in and doing it. And to the point, like Fontana was, there's like, she's describing this moment in this interview. She's like, yeah, I was sitting at my desk and all, all of a sudden I see Leonard peer around the door and peer back. And he did this for like five or 10 minutes, just constantly checking when she was going to leave. And she's like, hey, Leonard, and scared him. And it's like, I don't think you're supposed to be back here. And he's like, oh, Yeah. <laughs> Long story short, everybody hated him. Nobody liked him. And it was just kind of all up in the air, super crazy. Um, there's stories of a guy like saying, well, if I was walking down the stairwell with Leonard, and I guess I guess that ban got him, was lifted eventually by Gene. But he was like, if I there's an open window, I was like, do you know what? I could push him out and the world would be a better place. So the writers, the crew did not like Gene's attorney, Leonard. And you're questioning, why would Gene need Leonard around? And Gene was a very kind of a, not an angry dude. So G Leonard was the wrath, that cathartic vessel, an arm of Roddenberry to go after things he didn't like. I mean, he emotionally supported Gene. Gene was, he was just getting out of rehab. And Leonard was that emotional support for Gene. And I mean, even to the point, talking about Roddenberry's health, Roddenberry's health started to disintegrate super quickly. He was having many strokes and he was going downhill. So to have that kind of advocate emotional support was important to him. And that's why he kept Leonard around all those years. He was shutting down pretty much. And there was this kind of this power vacuum in the set, which we'll cover in episode two. So we have this power vacuum on the set of TNG due to Gene's now deteriorating health. And they bring in this writer from Miami Vice, a guy named Hurley. 
and pretty much Gene hated what he wrote, didn't like anything. <laughs> he even said, like in a meeting, he's like, Gene's like, you don't know the difference between shields and deflectors. You're a moron. You don't, you can't write Star Trek because you don't know Star Trek. And he, Gene wanted Hurley to write to, to Gene. He wanted to write about Gene and to Gene. And Hurley's like, no, I'm going to write a good show. That's what I'm here to do. Now, when I say he didn't write to Gene, you're like, John, what does that even mean? And it means is that if you look at the original series and you look at TNG, the original series, Kirk is this kind of, hey, womanizer, Zach Brannigan type. He's this kind of this womanizer, cowboy diplomacy, ride by the seat of his uh, pants kind of guy, kind of captain. And that's how Gene was back in the day. Remember when I said he had affairs and things like that? So that's how Gene pretty much viewed himself. He used Star Trek as a personal manifesto again. And now he was older. He was more seasoned. He was more mature. And he wanted this Star Trek to be like a more like wise, thoughtful, provocative, intellectually show. Instead of wham, bam, yeah, kind of cowboyish that the original series was. So Hurley wasn't writing that, and Gene was pissed. <laughs> and there was just so much, and not only Hurley had an issue with this as we wrap up here, there was a lot of issues with the writers in general because Gene, and this is why I went into all of his backstory and his mindset going into the production because Gene had this manifesto of the 24th century being this utopia, being this almost heaven-like area. And the problem with having a heaven-like utopia, there's no conflict. How do you write conflict in that type of atmosphere, in that type of environment? There's no jealousy. There's no money. There's no real career ambitions. So it's kind of, how do you write that? You know, that's a tough job to do. That's very difficult to kind of write and the kind of restraints it puts you in. Now, some of the writers in the interview said it was great. It really stretched us. It really made us learn our craft. And yeah, absolutely. That would definitely do that, you know, but however, it was very difficult. So that's going to set us up for episode two of this. And it'll be our final episode about Roddenberry and the TNG show. However, real quick, I'll just throw in the story is that the cast when Patrick Stewart was brought on in the first couple seasons, he thought the cast was too jovial. And he did they, they didn't take it serious in a, quote, lack of focus. So here's Jonathan Frax. He's going to explain what the cast was doing most of the time. And if we fooled around, which we were wont to do, we meaning the Americans in the cast, and if he was not in the mood, he'd let us have it. I thought that there was a, a lack of concentration of focus on the set, that people were taking this far too lightly. We would sing and we would dance and we would wrestle. What? Bill, you're acting like you didn't do this? No! Oh, Bill. Doesn't that sound fun? I thought that was pretty cool. Like, I'd want to be part of something like that. Reminds me of college. Shout out to Storms Brothers. Kind of, yeah, relax and have fun, playing jokes, wrestling, <laughs> whatever. I just think... Pat Stewart didn't want to do that. Again, he was very classically trained. That's one of the most um, famous kind of frictions of the TNG cast, pretty much the only one. And there's even rumored 
that Stewart said, this is not about having fun. This is about acting. <laughs> and he screamed to the, to the cast one day. I don't know. I just wanted to throw that in there at the very tail end because I know um, it's a cool story, but also really the only drama between the cast on that. However, that has been episode one and we will conclude next week on episode two of the drama behind TNG. Okay. Thank you all so much for listening. I really appreciate it. That was a fun episode to do. And um, the second episode's even wilder. Um, again, it's really not as kind of drama and catty as the um, Voyager episode. However, still interesting, a lot of fun facts behind how they TNG came to be, how Roddenberry was really kind of this stickler for the show. However, I will announce we might do this in between episode one and episode two of the TNG um, drama is that I'm just going to do a free live episode on Instagram. I'm going to talk about the politics behind Star Trek and the modern day and the old um, of the original series in TNG and DS9, how politics have always been in Star Trek and should always be in Star Trek. Now you say, Jonathan, you've always said, this isn't about politics. You're not going to talk about modern politics that don't really go into that field. However, I've heard so many, so many Star Trek fans be like, there's no politics in Star Trek. There shouldn't be any politics in Star Trek. I'm like, bro, that's all it's ever been. That's all it's ever was. In the words of Captain Crunch, oops, all politics. That's all it's up. That's that's what's always been. Um, For example, um, they had the first interracial kiss on network television between Captain Kirk and Uhura. Yeah, this is this is what they do. And I think that's great. I think television should always be a great avenue for social commentary. I mean, just a sneak peek, the original series talks about Vietnam, about race, and this is a great time to do it in the 60s. So um, to say Star Trek is nothing but escapism and nothing, that's it, I think is kind of wrong. And you can have certain sci-fi that isn't that way. But for Star Trek, that's what makes it so great is it's a blend between the two. It makes you think, huh. And you go say, well, it's only original series. I mean, there's so many examples. However, this is going to be a little bit of a live show. It's going to be relaxed, not edited, just off the cuff. Like I said, it's going to be on Instagram. You can hit us up on Instagram at Omega Particle Podcast. We're now on Twitter at Omega Particle underscore. We're happy to talk with you guys, debate with you guys. Again, I've been kind of off the grid, haven't been posting as much because taking care of my wife and newborn son. But I want to say thank you for all your support. It's been great talking with you guys. And um, just makes me realize how much I love this podcast, how much I love producing it, and how much it's a great cathartic thing for me to do. And I will keep doing it. And I just love that some people like, like what I'm doing too. Anyway, I just want to say I love you guys and thank you. And stay safe out there. I know there's a lot of turbulent times, but let not your heart be troubled There will be brighter days. There will be a better future. And always remember, second start of the right, straight on till morning.